Hey everybody, Ryan Sanford here, host of Journey to the Energy C-Suite podcast. And this episode of the show is sponsored by mCloud Technologies. I want to tell you a little bit about mCloud. mCloud is bringing some highly innovative solutions to the energy industry to help their customers optimize collaboration, digitalize workflows, help them visualize their facilities, and a lot more. If you're looking for ways to better connect your workers, check out mCloud. mCloud is highly focused on serving energy industry clients, so much so that they recently opened a brand new ESG and digital transformation hub right here in Houston, Texas. And oh, by the way, they are currently hiring in all areas of their business. So if you're looking for ways to better connect your workers, check out mCloud at mcloudcorp.com to learn more. And now, time for our show. Every career is a journey. Every leader has a story. Welcome to Journey to the Energy C-Suite, where we look at the strategies and techniques that turn solid leaders into top executives. This is your place to hear practical wisdom and guidance from real people who know what it takes. With your host, Ryan Sanford. Hey again, everybody. Welcome back to Journey to the Energy C-Suite on the OGGN. Thanks for pressing that play button. I am your host, Ryan Sanford. It's good to be back with you, and I'm really excited to bring back our first ever two-time guest on Journey to the Energy C-Suite. He's a leadership thought leader, executive coach. He's a contributor to Harvard, Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Forbes, and others. He's one of the Marshall Goldsmith 100 country, uh, 100 coaches. He is Nihar Chaya. Nihar, thanks so much for being back with us. Ryan, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate being back on. I didn't know that I was the first two-time guest, but it's an honor, and I'm really excited to, to chat with you. Well, that's right, and I hope there's room on your office wall for the plaque that you'll be receiving for that. <laughs> I'll make room for it. <laughs> Along with all those fancy degrees you have, you, you can put it right next to, to, the, to the Wharton and Georgetown ones. Right. <laughs> How you been, my friend? I'm good. I'm good, Ryan. You know, I think as we had shared in our first uh, talk, you know, you and I go way back. We've been colleagues uh, before at uh, PDI Ninth House and Corn Ferry. And so it's always get, good to get back in touch with you as an old friend and colleague and kind of fun also to to chit chat about like, you know, trends in the leadership space. Absolutely. And speaking to trends, I, I would love to pick your brain in terms of the kinds of trends you're seeing uh, with the leaders you're supporting, you coach a lot of executive leaders, and uh, I imagine there might be a theme or two that you you're seeing as we kind of crawl our way out of the pandemic. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a challenging time, you know, right now. Um, and I don't know that necessarily it's stopped being challenging. I would say that there's been issues that we saw in 2020 when the pandemic started, obviously with um, dealing with the idea of not being in front of your colleagues and being able to connect as much. And as the, even though we're all coming a little bit back to work, I still think that the topics of building trust and connection and engagement continues to be a challenge. Um, and so they, that's top of mind for most of the clients I work with. Are you seeing a lot of your, your uh, clients, the executives and the teams they support uh, more of a hybrid model of working or completely virtual, or is it all over the map? I think it's still um, very much a hybrid. Uh, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I would say that um, very much over the, across the map in terms of preferences, because there a lot of leaders actually would love to continue working from home. Um, some leaders actually feel really anxious working from home and still feel like they need to be in the office. 
And I think that that applies to both um, executives and their direct reports and lower uh, lower into the organization. Um, but I would say that my feeling is that people are going to start going into the office in in more numbers, um, just because I think a lot of companies and um, senior management, I, I think they are, unless you are a company that was already doing that before, I think a lot of them, as David Solomon and Goldman Sachs had said, you know, they look at it as like an aberration, a little bit of mm-hmm. a, a blip in the trend and not something that they really want to all of a sudden make permanent. So let's talk about a couple of the challenges or, or the bigger challenges that you see with the executives that you support around that issue. I mean, how, how is that presenting itself? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, certainly the idea of how do you lead people in at scale without really understanding exactly whether your message is getting through. Um, and it's an ironic thing because in some respects, trust can be diminished if you don't actually believe that your team can get things done without you having to be hovering over them. Mm. <laughs> so in some respects, those people that might've had a tendency to micromanage or to try to be, um, you know, to manage by walking around and, and which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but kind of being uh, involved in every little step of, of their team's actions, those folks uh, are maybe even more challenged now um, or, or feeling more of an uh, impetus to say, okay, good, now we're fine, no more masks, we got to get back into the mm. office. And that doesn't necessarily work for people because I think, you know, because the pandemic showed us that we can actually do a lot of effective work from home or virtually, a lot of folks aren't buying it. You know, they're thinking, mm-hmm. well, hey, you know, I don't know that I need to actually go right back to the way things were. And that's, I think, a big reason why we see this, the great resignation. There's a lot of reasons why I think the great resignation is happening. I don't think it's always only because of the pandemic. But I do think there's a sense among most employees and managers that there's probably other ways to get to be successful and to work. And so to your question, the trend that I'm seeing is a lot of quitting. Um or a lot of staying while other people around you are quitting. And that creates a lot of, um, I think, tension and, and uncertainty. And so what are some of the things that leaders can do, especially executive leaders, do to um, kind of get ahead of that problem? On some level, um, there may be nothing you can do to stop someone if they have a better opportunity somewhere else or they, they're seeking more flexibility and your company just doesn't offer it from a policy standpoint. But mm-hmm. I imagine there might be a thing or two that le- leaders can do to get out ahead of this to make sure that they do everything they can to retain the key people on their team. Yeah, I, I think some of the themes that we talked about, you and I have talked about and other leadership development experts have, have, have mentioned I think the game, the rules of the game are, are, are still the same. You want to remind people that you're investing in them. And um, I think, you know, when I think of like, um, you know, Dan Pink's uh, book uh, around motivating people, you know, he talks about the uh, three things, autonomy, purpose, and mastery. I think they still apply. I think people still want a sense of autonomy that they can kind of be free agents in their life. They want some sense of purpose in their work and they want to be able to know that they're building some mastery. And so I think um, for executives to really retain their team, you have to remember that uh, some of the things that you might feel more comfortable in leading people, you know, and, and make you feel less uh, concerned are not the things that are going to make them feel safe mm-hmm. and make them feel more motivated. And so I think um, one recommendation I always make to my leaders is to really get a sense for each of your team or your direct reports, what is really behind their value system. Um, regardless of whether you agree with it, what is really driving them? Because now more than ever, 
Um, people are looking for their bosses, I think, to understand them on a human level, on a on an equal playing ground, even though they might have different work responsibilities and different hierarchical structures, but really are, are looking for those employers that are going to make them feel as if um, you know, that the company cares for what they're trying to aspire to and what makes them whole, um, not just what's going to make the senior leadership happy. And, and that gets to the point about developing trust and connection. And, and as, as you mentioned earlier, that, that becomes a little bit more blurry or, or a little more difficult with uh, the nature of hybrid work or virtual teams. And we're not in the same space. Yeah. Um, I know, I know leaders that have been hired during the pandemic that have never been in the same physical space with the people they work mm-hmm. for or work with or the, or their direct reports. So uh, it becomes a little bit more challenging, but what you're describing here is a different kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. between boss and employee, the leader and their team. Um, what are some of the keys to having those conversations around making people feel like they're getting what they need personally, but also you know, aligning their work to uh, what the organization needs for, for them to be successful? Yeah. So I think one thing you said is really, really operative. Um, having the conversation in just to begin with is, is a great step. I think it's interesting how many times we don't really see these conversations happening because we're all busy and everybody is, is really concerned with deliverables and, and obviously managing different personnel changes and things like that. But how many times it's interesting to ask yourself as a leader, how many times have you actually sat down with somebody on your team to really ask them out of curiosity, how are you doing? And, and mm. I, I don't mean just how are you doing in terms of like the pandemic and, and your family. And I think those are really important things to do. But I think more around what are you really in, interested in um, in achieving? You know, what, what mm. really drives you? What are some things that, you know, if you had a magic wand, what would be something that you would change in the organization right now to, to be more fulfilled and more successful? You know, a lot of wisdom resides in your team. But uh, unfortunately, like, and it's human nature, I think, but if you're a senior leader, a lot of times you feel this need to be able to prove that you know everything first, or you don't want to necessarily look as if like, you know, the imposter syndrome is can, can be a pretty big mm-hmm. um, inhibitor there. But a lot of times leaders won't take the time to actually just vulnerably ask them like, hey, I need help, you know, like, let me know what the team needs from us. Um, so having that conversation, I think is really important. Um, as I mentioned, curiosity is very important. So how many times have you as a leader really stepped back and asked questions without judgment, um, without trying to kind of wait to inject your answer or your opinion, um, a- asking out of, out of just a genuine um, interest in the journey of somebody else? Because those things I think people can tell, people can sense uh, when you are really interested in what they're working on or what they want to be. Um, as opposed to kind of leading the witness towards what you would mm. like them to do. And I say that the third thing would just be, um, you know, your question was great around what can people do to get ahead of this? I think to be a little bit creative in terms of how we do touch points with, with team members. So, you know, now, um, and I'll say this even for me as a coach with my clients, like I was never really a big texter, um, but I'm doing a lot more texting now. I, I always felt before, I guess, as a, as a coach to my clients, I felt that it was a little bit inform- informal. Um, but then I realized that actually we're all kind of in an informal environment now. I mean, it really pays to, to connect with people without a lot of um, preciousness, you know, without a lot of formality, because that really does create intimacy and trust. And so as a leader, if you're really not used to connecting with people in a more um, you know, conversational or human way, it might help to think about like, 
okay, maybe I don't have to have like a fixed one hour one-on-one with this person, but I can just ping them every now and then to see how's it going. Um, is there anything I can help you with? And, um, you know, text, Slack, email, phone, all different types of formats can be helpful too. Yeah. I like, I like how you attach the word intimacy to that. I, I, it just really sparks something in my mind. If you think mm-hmm. about, um, just think about your relationship with your, with your spouse or your significant other, mm-hmm. um, you know, just those little touch points throughout the day. It might be a quick text. It might be uh, a voicemail, something that's that's just outside of the, the norm. You're not having a long conversation, but those things can, can can build intimacy. And I think about client relationships or colleague relationships where um, you can communicate outside of the formal channels of an email or, or a Teams message or something like that. And um, it, it does build a, a sense of colleagueship when you're doing that internally, I think, when you can just send a quick text and know you're going to get a response um, and not have to get on email and type some long <laughs> explanation yeah. for something or schedule a meeting. We, we all have plenty of meetings on our calendar already. Um, I think that's a different way of operating. We think about leading people. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, are, are you finding that that some of the executives you work with now are starting to open their eyes and, and, and adopt some of those strategies that you just talked about? I, I do. And it's interesting because I don't know that it's necessarily because they didn't want to create that intimacy, but they really didn't know how to. Um, you know, and I would say, you know, I think it's, it's also part of the human condition. Like we all have different triggers or different preferences. I know some people that, for instance, if you're, you know, to your point about emailing, like some people, when they see a long email, they might be like, Oh my God, I don't have time for this, you know, and they just Mm. don't even want to engage because it's going to go back and forth. On the other hand, some people would say if they see a curt one sentence email, they're thinking, wow, that's kind of rude, you know? So there's, (laughs) there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, misunderstandings that can happen through those communication channels. And so I think a lot of people will just choose not to engage in those things. Uh, but that's really the wrong answer. And, you know, I think a lot of leaders that I'm working with are experimenting now with lots of new things. Like I was just in a, in a group coaching uh, meeting yesterday with a client where we have worked with about eight vice presidents um, every two weeks. And we were talking about how they can influence more across different divisions in the company and how the division that they were trying to influence is a little bit more informal and they're not necessarily that informal. And they realized that actually, instead of waiting to be kind of included in those meetings and to have a seat at the table, they had to kind of change the way they were engaging because they realized those folks actually are texting, are on Slack, are kind Mm. of you know, just checking in on a more informal basis. And these folks felt like they had to wait for, you know, the request, hey, mm. can you come to this meeting with this type of deck. And so instead, what they're practicing now is saying, oh, you know, instead of me having to work, build this perfect deck before I or wait for the request, I'm going to just kind of text people informally and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking about. Here's an idea I had, you know, no rush to reply, but just curious if you thought, you know, if anything resonates here. And what that does is a few things. It creates a connection with the team that you might feel a little bit gate kept from. Number two, it makes other people in, in, you know, that you're working with feel like they're, they're, they have skin in the game. They're actually part of your process. So they actually do feel more of a trust and a connection with you. And the last part of it is when you do get that request and you're presenting something formal to another team across the company, more than likely, they're going to be receptive of it because they were part of the process. They don't, they're not actually just mm. sitting there waiting to see something brand new and then judging it. Um, so there's a lot of wins that you can have, I think, by changing the way you interact with people. And, and I will say that a lot of leaders that I'm working with are, are kind of hungry for those techniques. 
So it's interesting. I'm thinking uh, we've talked a lot about executive presence on here um, in the past. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm thinking about this whole dynamic of being open to less formal ways of communication in the context of hybrid or virtual teams. And also the notion of showing up the right way as an executive, remaining authentic to yourself, but but having executive presence. I mean, how do you help <laughs> leaders manage that dynamic whenever yeah. uh, you're introducing maybe some less formal ways instead of sitting in a boardroom and someone spent two weeks on the presentation, we're going to sit with our arms crossed and listen to what they have to say <laughs> versus I'm texting a senior executive at nine o'clock at night. Um, running an idea by them before I finalize, you know, a, a point on on my uh, proposal. Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting point. Like the the first thing I would say is maybe the definition of executive presence, as as we know it, needs to adapt a little bit um, because you know I, I'll use the example of like you know years ago when I was working in in New York and, and DC, uh, I would wear a suit every day. This again, I think most people were kind of more formal back then, but. When I moved to Texas, which is, you know, I moved to join the company that you and I worked with, I remember going to an oil and gas company client and they were like, I was wearing a suit and they were like, you're way overdressed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Who died? Yeah. <laughs> Who's getting married? And, and they're like, you stand out. Like you look like somebody who is either going to, you know, be a consultant here, who's going to, you know, reevaluate our company or um, you just look like, you know, like a, like a spy basically. <laughs> so I, you know, and that's partly a Texan thing, but I think it's changing everywhere. You know, nowadays you'll see even on the, on the, um, in, in other cities and more kind of formal companies, you, people aren't wearing those ties. They're, they're, they're kind of wearing khakis and it's not just business casual Friday anymore. And that, that in itself shows you that like executive presence, as it were, when it comes to, you know, gravitas and, and wardrobe and things. I think they evolve. And um, just as you might be underdressed or underprepared, you could be overprepared, over, overdressed, and maybe create a little bit of discomfort for some, for some people. I think that uh, the, you know, I, I, it's interesting. I go back to this really great tool that I think Charles Green uh, wrote called the Trust Advisor. Um, called, and he has this thing called the Trust Equation, which I really love because and it talks to this point of intimacy that you mentioned as well. You know, he talks about how trust with people grows through this uh, fraction, which is a numerator, which is as they go up, your trust goes up and the denominator as it goes up, your trust will go down. The uh, numerator would be uh, C plus R plus I uh, over S. And so C is competence. R is reliability. I is intimacy. And the denominator S would be self-orientation. And his, his concept is that, you know, things like competence will build trust. The more competent people believe you are, they'll trust you more. The more reliable you are, are, they'll trust you. But they also need intimacy. They need a sense that you are willing to admit when you're wrong. They need to know who you are as a person, as a human, and and be interested in them as a person. Um, And S needs to not be high because that can de- diminish trust. So self-orientation, the more we send a message that we're oriented towards our own agenda, that's going to diminish trust. And so when I think about executive presence, I think a lot of times we think of the competence part as the main driver. Like, you know, you're walking into a meeting and people look to you and say, wow, that's a leader. Mm-hmm. But actually, you know, trust also is important with the intimacy part, which in some ways almost goes against the formality. It, 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 it actually requires you to be vulnerable. It requires you to admit when you're making mistakes and maybe even be okay with people seeing you make mistakes. Uh, and so 
all those things play a big part in how you're going to leave an audience in terms of you engaging them or not engaging them. And I think here we're in a place now where people are much more interested in a psychologically safe environment as opposed to one where we're just looking at a leader who, who kind of, you know, plays the part and looks the role. Yeah. Uh, building trust is, is such a big part of being able to influence either, either inside or outside your organization. And you just wrote an article for Forbes, I believe. Um, I, I don't have the title right, but it, it really talks a lot about relentless self-ownership. That's, that's yeah. um, a term that I think you coined. I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit. Well, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's a concept that, that I certainly didn't invent. But I, I think that, um, you know, it started with the idea that I coach leaders who essentially need to shift perceptions of them in their organizations. Um, you know, sometimes they are looking to influence better, but sometimes they are looking to get to shed the old tapes that people have of them um, because maybe they came in, uh, you know, as a driver and they were they were feeling like success was all about driving results and then they got promoted and all of a sudden they were shown the, the, the view that now you need to actually step back. You can't be the one controlling everything and people need to feel comfortable, you know, and motivated by you and inspired, not just driven by you. And when they have to shift these kinds of mindsets and behaviors, it can be very difficult to shed other people's perceptions because we're only human. We're going to we have confirmation bias. You know, we we have certain beliefs we have about people around us and we are looking, you know, subconsciously for evidence that supports our beliefs. And so if I think that you're a really scary leader, I'm probably going to find reasons to support that you're a scary, intimidating leader. Um, on the other hand, if I think of you as like this amazing leader, I'm going to find reasons to support that as well. And some of that might not even be based on real, you know, evidence or, or facts. Again, it's based on, on the bias that exists for all of us. And so I think what it comes down to, Relentless self-ownership is the idea that if I'm going to change people's perceptions of me, I have to start with owning my own perception of myself and, and the blind spots that might exist. And really understanding that, you know, if somebody gives me feedback and says, you know, Nihar, you, you are not showing a strategic lens in your role. Um, it doesn't really matter whether I agree with that or not. Because, and, and that's not to say that they're right. But it really doesn't matter in terms of what I do with, with that about whether I agree with it or not. It actually matters whether I can at least accept the fact that that's a perception that's flying around around mm -hmm. me. And so when you're relentlessly self-owning, owning your feedback, you're giving, you're giving yourself the opportunity to be open to feedback in a less judgmental way and therefore you'll grow. But more importantly, you're conveying a message to people that you are going to actually invite their continued feedback as opposed to resist it. And that creates trust, you know, because like, as I say in the article, a common example I'll see with leaders when I give them a 360 feedback assessment and I'll say, you know, you should go back to your stakeholders and ask them for continued feedback based on what we heard. They'll say, they'll immediately feel like really excited and they'll go to their team. And they say, I want to hear more feedback and I really want to change and I want to grow. And then the minute somebody actually shares with them privately, here's something that I think you should try. If they show resistance, even if it's the body language, like mm. I don't agree with that, or they're trying to find reasons to explain where they were coming from, that alone will make that other person less willing to come to you proactively, mm. right? And so the self-ownership piece is really one of those things where you have to parse out and separate yourself from whether this is right or wrong to actually saying, I'm going to own how people feel about me 
and then I'm going to decide what to do about it. And it's usually more um, successful and effective if you actually just um, convey the message that you're, you're owning yourself first, therefore you can invite their, their perspectives. Yeah, very interesting concept. Um, I, I love that article. I think everybody should read it. If you want to check out Nihar's, um, Nihar's work, you can find it on Forbes and, and Fast Company and other places where he he publishes. And you're you're quite busy with with the publications. You squeeze that in between all your coaching <laughs> coaching and speaking work. But uh, hey, I want to talk about one more thing uh, before we before we let you go today. And, and it's um, you know there have been a lot of battlefield promotions. It seems like over the last 18, 24 months, as companies have had to restructure and become agile, and people have found themselves in new roles. And as leaders. Um, we're constantly evaluating and reevaluating. Am I in the right place? Am I in the right role? Is this the right environment for me? Because the world of possibilities is now bigger. Um, I wonder, but there's also kind of kind of a growing uncertainty about our careers that can creep in too. And I know you you've thought a lot about that and written a little bit about that as well. I wonder if you can talk about kind of what you're seeing among amongst leaders and executives when it comes to career uncertainty. Certainly, yeah. <laughs> Funny, is it no pun intended? Um, the I actually wrote um, a few articles recently in Harvard Business Review about this concept because not only is there, I think, career uncertainty happening, but also so much quitting happening, right? And it's like, mm. you know, it's one thing to say that I might should I quit um, and you know follow the trend of the Great Resignation. It's another thing yeah. to be actually one of the survivors in your company while everybody else is quitting, because that creates another level of uncertainty. Um, you know, it's like anything else. There's a FOMO that that kind of fear of missing out that comes up. You're thinking, should I be reevaluating? You know what I should be doing? Yeah. What and do they know that I? What do they know that I don't know here? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing is, unfortunately for a lot of people, it's not an, it's not even a possibility for them to make changes voluntarily because you might have a family that you're you know you're you're it's you need to take care of and you have some kind of goals you know personal goals that you need to stay close to without mm. the flux. Um, but here's the thing, um, you know, as I coach a lot of leaders on this, the idea is as much as you can be proactive and again, owning self-ownership is important, owning your life and your career and being an agent of your destiny. Um, I think the more fulfilled you, you will be. And what I, what I really hate to see is when people who are worried about making changes and quitting because they're thinking, oh, it's too much work to get my resume out there and look at LinkedIn and things and build a network again. Those people become a little bit complacent. And then all of a sudden they wake up one day and they're told that they're going to actually be let go. Mm. And, you know, that is a real shame because ultimately, you know, the company is, is, is in a different, they have a different criteria for decision-making than you do. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, they might be able to find different talent to, and they'll be okay when you move on, but where are you going to be? And so I think about this time and I wrote about this in the article, I said, you know, this is a time when it actually might be better to double down on some, some introspection, not saying you should leave your company, but you know, a lot of people get kind of comfortable in their company and they say, well, I know the culture. I know what I'm getting paid. I know what my career path looks like. They haven't really taken the time to think about their values, think about their sense of purpose, think about their strengths and weaknesses, um, take some assessments, for instance, to understand, you know, how do they show up as a leader? Where might the blind spots be? This is a great time to, to even just do a self audit on these kinds of things for yourself, because, you know, you might actually come across uh, some insights that say, wow, this is why I've been unhappy, or this is why I've been 
you know, waiting for that promotion. It just never comes. Doesn't mean you have to do anything with it, but it might also mm. um, engage you with some, some action planning that can help you. The second thing that is that I think it's important in a time of uncertainty to think about what you can control. And I would say that, you know, this is where it's important to focus on the process versus the outcomes. It can be easy to start thinking and imagining that people who are quitting are getting much better jobs and much better pay and much better visibility and what have you. But the reality is we don't really know the truth behind all that. And we also don't know that just because you would quit, you would all of a sudden land the perfect opportunity or that if you stayed, you would all of a sudden get promoted. I think it's important instead to focus on daily behaviors that you can keep accumulating. You know, like I love the idea of like James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. It's like these ideas of micro actions that you, you know, consistency is more important than doing the perfect thing. Yeah. So for instance, are you making a commitment every day to raise your hand in a meeting and offer something of value? You know, are you making a commitment every day to, I mean, every week, for example, to meet somebody new in your company and, and building that network? Are you making a commitment every month maybe to write or blog or speak or something that's going to actually create some visibility for your brand? All those things ultimately add up and they can give you a sense of certainty, even though you might feel like, you know, things are, are uncontrollable right now. Hey, great stuff, man. I wonder if you could talk a little bit before we let you go, just about some of the projects you have coming up. I know you, you do quite a bit of writing. Are there any topics that we should be looking out for in the uh, yeah. in Fast Company, Forbes, Harvard yeah. uh, well, Business Review coming up? Well, I appreciate it, Ryan. And, you know, so um, uh, there's a, a few more pieces, I think, coming out on, on what do you have, what's this I quit conversation about? You know, I think the, the main lesson that I always say is that whether you quit or you stay in a company, relationships matter. It's the, it's the bread and butter of leadership. And, um, you know, I think it's important how you manage those conversations when you're moving on, um, as well as how to manage those conversations when people are moving on. Because I also talk about the idea that it can be easy to disengage with people after they leave your company. But, you know, those folks might be the best resource you have when you need them later on. And the idea of, you know, don't, don't wait until you're, you know, you're thirsty to build, to dig your well. You know, I think it's important to keep engaging with folks from a place of, you know, we're all kind of in this together. And so I have a few articles on that idea of how do you, you, you know, manage yourself during this time? How do you have that conversation with your boss and other people? And how do you start having a longer term view on potentially, you know, the value of relationships with people that might not even been working out well now, but could potentially be, be fruitful in the future? Well, we'll keep our eyes open for that. Sounds like great stuff. Nihar, thank you so much for joining me again. You're the two-time world champ now of uh, <laughs> Journey to the Energy C-Suite. Thank you, Ryan. It's such a pleasure. I, I love uh, talking to you. You're a great podcaster. So it's, a, it's, always, a, it's always a fun time for me. Thank you. And uh, so this has been Nihar Chaya, uh, owner and proprietor of Partner Exec, an executive coaching firm, leadership thought leader. A contributor to HBR, Fast Company, Forbes, one of the Marshall Goldsmith 100 coaches. Thank you so much again, Lehar. Thank you for listening to us, folks. We appreciate you uh, pressing that play button again on OGGN. We look forward to seeing you soon for more great interviews. Tune in next week for another enlightening episode of Journey to the Energy C-Suite, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com. 